from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Today is a, a busy day, as evidenced by, I think, a lot of people being already pre-Halloweening with family and things. Uh, today is both All Hallows Eve. So tomorrow is All Saints Day. They used to call it All Hallows Day. And so today would be the evening of All Hallows. And so if you say All Hallows Evening really fast, 10 times, and then you do that for a few hundred years, you end up with Halloween. So All Hallows Evening turns into Halloween. So that's how we get that name. And uh, <laughs> I actually realized last night, I was like, oh, darn, Sunday actually falls right on Halloween. I could have done a whole Halloween thing. Um, but maybe some other year we can talk about that specifically. But today is also the exact day. Does anyone else know what day this is? Membership day. Yeah, who said that? Yes, Caleb. Yeah, also membership day, also very important. But more globally, and there's, a, there's a, an importance to this, uh, there's another uh, day. Today is Reformation Sunday. So let me tell you a story about a monk 504 years ago who was really ticked off. So <laughs> the Vatican was then and still today the wealthiest institution in the world. If by land ownership, they're the wealthiest group in the world. And they wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. Has anyone here been to Rome? Yes, you guys have probably been to St. Peter's Basilica. Yep. Uh, so St. Peter's, if you've ever seen a movie or a picture or really almost anything about Rome, you've probably seen St. Peter's Basilica. So it's one of the most beautiful cathedrals or technically basilicas in the world. And then outside of it is a square, which to me seems more like a circle, but they call it a square. And it's just got famous apostles and saints and gargoyles and all sorts of amazing statues. Uh, if you've seen any movie like the Da Vinci Code or Mission Impossible 3. Or, I mean, you pick your movie that takes place in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica, and the square outside is there. Uh, so it's arguably one of the most astounding constructions in the world, and it was designed by Michelangelo himself, among a few others. So Michelangelo did the Statue of David, one of the great Renaissance artists alongside Da Vinci, and he designed it. And uh, not only that, but St. Peter's Basilica was built on the very spot where the Apostle Peter was killed, was um, executed at the end of his life. But it takes money to build the grandest, greatest cathedral in the world. It takes a lot of money. But in the 1500s, the Pope did not want to ask the Italians to cough it up for this new basilica. So he thought he would pull a fast one instead and go to the peasant hordes in the north. So at that time, you know, now northern Europe is more advanced than southern Europe. But at the time, Italy and the Vatican and Rome, they were the more advanced ones, and the northern Europeans were more seen as poor peasants. Um, so <clears throat> the Pope sent a man named Johann Tetzel. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Johann Tetzel? You might know the story once I start telling it. He sent him to raise money from these poor peasant hordes to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica. So this Tetzel got a little carried away. He was partly in line with Catholic teaching, but he also went beyond it. What he did is he went to all the northern European countries and he sold fear. He went from town to town preaching about the pain of purgatory. So Catholics believe, no, the Eastern Orthodox don't believe this, Protestants don't believe this, early Christians don't believe this, but Catholics around the year 1200 started to uh, endorse a doctrine called purgatory, where when you die, instead of going to be with God forever or going to hell, you instead go to this sort of third space. And so the people who are justified before God go to this third space called purgatory, where they're justified, but they spend about 10,000 years being slowly passed through fire and still purified, almost as if, in my reading, as if the grace of the cross of Jesus didn't 
happen, right? So they're still justified, I guess, by Jesus, but then they go and spend 10,000 years kind of suffering in this sort of weird middle ground, midland area, and they call that purgatory. So this Johann Tetzel went around uh, preaching fear about this, uh, and he would say this famous phrase, people know it by different rhymes because originally he said it in German, but in English it says, it sounds something like this. He would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And he raised, by today's money, tens of millions of dollars in today's money with this kind of tactic. He's preaching to people about the torments their relatives were going through in purgatory, and then saying, but if you give money, the Catholic Church still believes this today, that there are certain forms of indulgences where if you do something for the church, if you say a certain prayer, if you give money, then that certain sins can be forgiven because of that specific action. And so... He raised, by today's money, tens of millions of dollars selling fear and getting these uh, ignorant, you know, farming people who didn't maybe know better, uh, who couldn't read the Bible because it was only in Latin, right? So he got them to believe this and pay a ton of money to essentially build people who are already extremely wealthy in the Vatican this great new basilica. Pay me and you can have your relatives escape the purgatorial fires. And so if you go to Rome today or if you go again and you see St. Peter's Basilica, know that even in all of its grandeur, it was paid for off the backs of poor farmers in northern Europe by the lie of indulgences. It was paid for by my ancestors, Germanic and Scandinavian farmers. Uh, But there was a young monk who was troubled by this centuries-growing divide. It had been noted. He was not the first, but he had noted, there had been people who had noted for hundreds of years that the Catholic Church was moving away from Scripture and moving away from what the early church Believed. It might not have been like this in the year 400 AD, but by the year 1400 AD, that had certainly happened. Uh, and this monk was named Martin Luther, as many of you probably have heard the name. And 504 years ago today, this October 31st, he wrote 95, we could call them points of debate. They're famously remembered as the 95 theses, but I'm a little hesitant to call them this because this goes along with this whole epic myth that we ham up a little bit too much, like this angry Luther, you know, has read the scripture and he knows the truth, and so he has this horde of people that are all angry, angry at the Catholic Church, and they take this, you know, 95 theses and they go up to the church and they just start hammering them into the church, like, what a sacrilege. Actually, what, what really happened is this place on the church was a bulletin board for academic debate. And so multiple times throughout the week, people would pin things or nail things to the door. It was what everybody did. And he was an academic. He was a monk, but also a scholar. By today's standards, he would have a PhD, though they didn't quite have that then. Um, And so he said, he wasn't trying to break away. He was saying that the church has erred, right? We have gone away from what's true, and we need to get back to what's right. And so I suggest these 95 points of debate I want to talk about these openly, right? Not necessarily picking on the Catholic Church. He was the Catholic Church, right? He was a monk. He was a servant. He was a priest in the Catholic Church. But he said, let's talk about these and let's move the church toward a pure and right and biblical direction. Uh, The difference between what he put up on that board and what other people had been talking about, there have been sort of reformational um, uh, ideas happening for a few hundred years, like John Wycliffe and Tyndale and others, Uh, But the difference was that Europe at that time, Luther's time, was a tinderbox. It was simmering under various different uh, pressures, both religious and national. And Luther's theses, his debate challenge, kind of became the match, right? The straw that broke the camel's back. It lit it all 
on fire, to go back to my <laughs> tinderbox. I, I always mix metaphors. People criticize me. They're like, you start with this metaphor and you finish with this other one. You've got you to follow it through. All right, so tinderbox, he was the match. Um, so <laughs> uh, his Latin, he wrote it up on the board in, in Latin, so only other scholars could read it. But the printing press was new, fairly new at the time, and it was translated into German, and the rest is sort of history, right? He, they, these theses got translated into German, even though they were academic, they weren't meant to be bombastic or really campy or anything, they were academic, but once they were translated into German, they just took off, and people read them and passed them along to their friends, and they ordered more copies, and soon enough, you had the beginning of the Reformation, where he wanted to reform the church, but eventually, he, he came up against this, uh, this brick wall where it was either you're a heretic and leave or go start something else. So these theses, in them he challenged all sorts of things, but the, the very base of them was that <clears throat> the nature of the religious life is not paying some church or some human authority to have your sins forgiven. That the nature of the religious life, the very first thesis I'll read it, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And then thesis two, this word, repent, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. So he starts his argument by saying, you can't buy your way out of sin. And the point of the Christian life is not to build bigger cathedrals or not to please some pope or not to enter into some human structure. It is to truly repent and follow our master, Lord Jesus Christ. That is the basis of Christian belief. So he already started it on a bit of a, a canon explosion. And he just goes on from there to say, <clears throat> excuse me, goes on from there to say all sorts of things. Uh, he, he challenged the idea that the Pope can forgive. He said only God alone can forgive. Uh, salvation, he said, is something that we can know and that we can trust in rather than this fear of like, will I be in purgatory for 10,000 years or 100,000 years? How long will I suffer? Will my relatives pay for me to get out of this area? Um, so just a little bit longer about this before we move into our church membership day, as Caleb uh, reminded us. Um, five groundbreaking assertions of the Reformation. Now, I don't want to be too critical of Catholics here. 500 years ago, there was a lot of reasons to be critical of them. But today, I feel like uh, Protestants and Catholics are some of the few allies we have in a, in a more and more secularizing West. So I see Roman Catholics as friends. I see them as confidants, as people we uh, march together with and believe together with, even though we do disagree with them on a number of theological points. So I don't want you to hear me as some Protestant pastor who's like, ah, the Roman Catholics got it wrong. They did get it wrong, right? And then we had the Reformation. But what's really interesting uh, is that they say that the Reformation essentially won the day, right? A lot of scholars argue this now, that the Reformation said, okay, so you can't buy your way out of sin. The Catholic Church fully agrees with that now. Uh, the Reformation said you should be worshiping in your mother tongue, not in Latin. You go to any Catholic church in the United States pretty much today, and they will be worshiping in English, not in Latin. Um, they said that people should be able to read their own scripture and not only have it taught to them by a priest. Go to any Catholic church today, and what will you find in the pews? Bibles in English and a translation they can understand. So a lot of people say, yeah, the Reformation, though Luther just wanted to reform the church, and the church wasn't willing. So when he ended up having this sort of breakaway the Protestant Reformation forced the Catholic Church to reform, and then you had this counter-reformation, and largely the Reformation won. Catholic churches all over the world are in the mother tongue, they're missional, uh, they're teaching scripture, they're reading it in their homes. Uh, so the Reformation, I mean, it's maybe not the most popular idea to a Catholic, uh, but their views on grace now, their views on how you're saved, and their views on scripture and how you worship have largely, though they're not fully, they're 
they're, they're almost, I'd say, Lutheran. They're almost Protestant ideas now. So the Reformation won. You still have Lutherans. You still have Catholics. But they're very much more on the same page than they were 500 years ago. Okay, so five groundbreaking assertions of the Reformation. Uh, sola Scriptura. It doesn't mean Scripture only. It means by Scripture alone. It means that Scripture is our highest authority. So the Catholic and Orthodox Church hold that Scripture is a really important authority, and so is tradition. Uh, and the Protestant Reformation said, no, that might have been true for the first few hundred years of the church when the tradition actually had living memory of Jesus, right? It was like, I remember my teacher who sat under Jesus, or I remember my teacher whose teacher sat under Jesus, right? There's, there's something to be said about apostolic succession and tradition. But once you get to 1,200 years later and people are inventing purgatory and they're making up all new, all new sorts of way to worship Mary and all sorts of things, uh, they say, you know what, tradition has gotten a little bit too far here. So we're going to put scripture at the top. So uh, in a sense, uh, there's a word I'm forgetting here, but scripture is the highest authority and we can listen to tradition, creeds, everything else, uh, church councils, but those all have to eventually bow to scripture, right? So we can be formed by the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which we recite here, but it's only because they answer to scripture and do so faithfully that we say, we use those. So scripture first, scripture, scripture primarily, or scripture uh, as a highest authority. By faith alone, and this is about salvation. So good works, indulgences, uh, being able to pat yourself on the back, having a, a mind that works really well versus not well or whatever, having a, good, having a better disposition toward those who are sick and poor rather than maybe not so great disposition, those are not the things that achieve salvation. It's only by faith in Christ. It's only by faith in what God did through Christ on the cross. And that that grace, so the next uh, big affirmation of the Reformation is by grace alone. And that grace is, it just means, it's the Greek word for gift. And so we get them all, we, we make it all theological. But the, when the Greeks heard the word grace, they heard the word gift. And that that gift of God is unmerited. We can do nothing to earn his favor. It's a complete gift of God through Christ and through his work on the cross. And it's not something we buy. It's not something we can bargain for. It's not something we can say a certain number of Hail Marys for. It's just a complete gift. And we either receive it, which is, you know, there is an action there. We either receive it or we don't. But that salvation is through God alone and by his own work alone. We have no, we cannot, there is no uh, economy to which we contribute to God's salvation. He's the one who offers it. Uh, and then there's two more. By Christ alone. The Bible says that the man, Jesus Christ, is the only mediator between God and man. So in the Catholic Church, they believed you need a priestly class to forgive sin. And so unless there's some sort of um, extreme disaster where you're caught on a desert island or something like that by yourself, if that's not the case, there is no forgiveness of sins without the church or without a priest. That's what the Catholic Church believed, that in order to have communion, to be baptized, which is then to be saved. So in order to be saved, you had to be baptized, be in communion with the church, and be regularly going to confession and be forgiven by a priest. Uh, and that's just simply not, not in Scripture, right? Um, so the, the, one of these affirmations of the Reformation is that, no, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man, not some priest, not, some, not, not this church, the Catholic Church, versus the Coptic Church, versus the Eastern Orthodox Church, versus the Sumerian Church. There's a lot of churches that go all the way back to the original disciples, not just the Roman Catholics. Uh, Roman Catholics would have you believe they are the only original church. They are not. There's four or five living churches today that, that have apostolic succession that goes all the way back to John or Peter or Paul. You know, basically John or Peter or Paul, one of them laying hands on somebody 
who laid hands on somebody, who all the way down to today, you have somebody who's at the bishop today, who's, who's had the unbroken chain of apostolic succession. So it's not just the Roman Catholics, there are a number of churches in that class. But uh, the Protestant Reformation brings this idea out that you do not need a priestly class to forgive sin or to hear confession, that we can confess to Jesus, that we can be forgiven because Jesus is our mediator. And then um, lastly, soli deo gloria, it means uh, to God alone be the glory. And by that, it means not to others. So glory does not go to Mary. Even though we respect her as the maybe most honorable woman who's ever lived, we don't pray to her, right? We don't bow down. We don't, we don't bow and confess our sins to Mary. We don't uh, pray to her like maybe a pagan tribe would pray to their dead ancestors. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to the saints, not to this or that dead person or mystery or right. All of our glory, all of our worship goes to God since he is the creator, he's the redeemer, the reconciler, and the king of heaven. And with that, we get this doctrine. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's called the priesthood of all believers. Have you guys heard this phrase? This is a Protestant doctrine. It's called the priesthood of all believers that you do not need a priest to be forgiven. You do not need a priest to take communion. You do not need a priest to uh, uh, have a uh, baptism. That what you need are believers, that all believers, in essence, are acting priests, and that Jesus Christ is our high priest who goes before us. The idea of the Protestant Reformation is that the Pope should not run the church, especially some church he's never been to among people he's never met who speak a different language, right? The Pope shouldn't run the church. The bishops shouldn't have sole control of a church, and the pastors shouldn't either. Instead, the people should run the church because there is this priesthood of all believers. It's not like you've got your priestly class and then your lowly farmers, right? It's rather all of us are priests in the church, and so the people should lead the church, whether elders, deacons, the, those who are wise and following after God, diligent in searching the scripture, that churches ought to run themselves according to scripture. Believers should come together of one accord, united around scripture and a common confession, because that's what the church was like in the beginning. It was locally led, locally governed, and caring principally about sharing the gospel and helping its own community, which is what the early church did not some vassal service just giving money to the rich in Italy a thousand miles away, or you know, serving the interests of these sort of inbred popes or unmarried men who don't even speak your language half the world away. Rather, the church here, so Capital City Church, think of it, we are in St. Paul, so we live here or in a nearby suburb. It's led here, it's governed here, and its decisions are made by its own people who care for its community, not just outsiders who want money, or crusades, or whatever else it might be. So this is why membership, so I'm transitioning here from the Protestant Reformation into membership, this is why membership is important. Because as a church member, the church officially, you are recognizing and honoring that priesthood that you have as a believer, that you, would, you will actually vote in the work of the church, that it will be your call as to how the church engages in ministry, how the church spends money, uh, the direction of the church and ministry. Uh, the, uh, as, as time goes on and we hire other people or you hire different people or whatever, the church makes that call together. Rather than some displaced pope or bishop who just wants to see their own ends propagated, it's you guys. It's the church that elects its leaders uh, through church membership. Now, anyone is welcome to attend this church, whether they believe all or most or not, not any of the statement of faith that we're going through today. But what we're doing today is going through the statement of faith and to become a member, 
That is the base commitment, is to share in the statement of faith. And it's a, though it's a high bar, as far as Protestants go, it's a lower bar, and that most people in this church will already agree with everything in the statement of faith, or, or quite, quite most things in the statement of faith. Then next week, that's when we're getting into the nitty-gritty of how actually church government works, how we vote in leaders, how the different things are allocated, and you don't have to agree with all of that. It's good if you agree with 80 or 90% of that, but frankly, there's no church government structure in the world that everyone is going to feel perfectly at home in. So the things we go through next week, you can be 80 or 90% in agreement with and still have a full and happy church life here, because again, any church you go to will have the same situation. But this stuff that we go through today, this is needed, that you agree with these things to be a member of Capital City. So with that, hopefully there's been some interesting history here as we talk about the Protestant Reformation. But then I do admit, uh, I'm not a systematic theologian. Maybe I should have had Josiah preach uh, today on the statement of faith. Um, because now we're going to go through our statement of faith, which I linked in the email. And also, I think it's at the bottom of your lyrics thing. I think I linked it. Yeah, thank you. Um, at the bottom of the lyrics for today, there's a link in my sermon. You can just click on that. And then that's the statement of faith. So we're going to take a little time to go through the statement of faith. I'll expound just a little bit on some of them. Some I'll just read through and, and move on. So this is the thing you'll want to be in 100% agreement with, agreement with or maybe just have a few questions later. If you're like, man, half of this I don't agree with, then we welcome you to keep attending this church. We love you. We'd love to have you here. But maybe membership isn't something you, you maybe wouldn't want to call yourself a member of a church if you don't agree with its statement of faith. So we welcome you to stay you know, forever and as long as you'd like. But uh, in terms of membership and voting, things like that, statement of faith is something that we all need to be on the same page on. All right, so I'm going to read the first one. You guys have it open? All right, so God. The first one is God. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. So this is an important first clause. I'll try to just spend a minute on a couple of these and not go beyond that. But God is the first cause. He is that prime mover. He created all things. He's perfect. And he exists, though our, our human minds cannot fully understand this. He exists as one substance, as one entity, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself to make all things new for his glory. So he was not taken off guard by what decisions humans made. He was not taken off guard when we rebelled against him. He has purposed from eternity to redeem a people to himself. And to redeem a people means that the people had fallen, right? So he has purposed from eternity to, to redeem people for himself. All right, I'll move on because I know that we've got nine more. Uh, Article 2, and I will comment a little bit more on this, uh, is the Bible. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises." Now, I'm, I'm expecting that this might be one of the few articles where some people are like, hmm, I've got a few questions here. Uh, this isn't the time or place, but this doesn't mean that there cannot be differences of opinion as to how to interpret the Bible. So the question, is the Bible absolutely true? 
Absolutely, right? That's how we can answer. But we can differ as to whether or not the Bible intends to be true on certain genre or playing fields. So does the Bible intend to be scientifically and material true, materially true, or theologically true, depending on which story you're reading? Um, so for most of you can just read this and say, yeah, great, the Bible is you know, the verbally inspired word of God. I completely believe that. Uh, but I, I just want to speak to this a little bit. We can differ among us as to whether the Bible intends to be true according to different genres. So is the, let me just ask this question. Is the book of Acts trying to accomplish the same kind of thing as the book of Jonah? Just think about that. Sometimes we get into trouble when we talk about the Bible being um, literally true is that we have this sort of decrepit, uh, post-enlightened educational experience where we don't know how to answer something being true or not unless we're talking about scientific historical journalism. Like something is, you know, to, to say that Calvin and Augustine thought that Jonah was a parable, we'd say, what, they thought Jonah was a parable? Like, well, then they couldn't preach in our churches today. And we get all caught up as to exactly, are we talking about scientific historical journalism or, or what? And so what I want to say is for most of Christian history, there has been a stronger recognition of genre. So Acts is historiography. The book of Acts is telling history. This is how the church formed, and this is what the early movers in the church did and what the early churches did. And it is, it, its intention is to declare historical fact. And so if someone says, oh, I just don't believe that Paul went to Ephesus ever. Okay, so that's a, that's a problem, right? Because Acts is saying, no, this did happen, and it's meaning to be history. What's tough is the Bible doesn't always tell you. So is Jonah meant to be a literal history? This literally happened in every sense of it? Or is it meant to be uh, theological? Is it meant to be uh, a parable? There's a lot of debate about that. So there's room here for us all to say, absolutely, Jonah is the word of God, verbally inspired, written through you know, its author. But we can disagree as to whether we think, no, this is literal, historical, scientific journalism. He, he was in the whale. He did get dropped off at these various cities. This all happened. Or other people could take a more of a spiritual reading, but both have to say it's fully true. So that's where this comes out. I know most of you are like, dude, the Bible's the word of God. I'm not worried about all that. But I know some people might get a little nervous about saying, uh, uh, signing on to this if they have a slightly different read on, say, Genesis 1 through 3, or Jonah, or some other things, uh, Noah and the Ark. You know, if, you have, if, you, if you have a slightly different read than just a literal, simplistic reading, um, I want you to know that you can be comfortable signing on to this. Uh, okay. Article three, the human condition. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. So this is about human nature. Not only are we born sinful, right? We've heard of um, the doctrine of original sin. Not, not only are we born sinful, that we are sinners by nature, we are also sinful by choice. This is that idea that if we were Adam and Eve, right, if, we, if it was always restarting with every generation, that we would be the reason for the fall, right? that every human being is not only born a sinner, but that we are sinners by choice, and then therefore alienated from God. And it's only through his work in Jesus, reversing that curse, reversing that choice of Adam and Eve, that we are rescued, reconciled, and renewed. All right, Article 4, Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand 
of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. This might be one of my favorite ones. I love, I love this one. Uh, not only for what it means, but for just how it's written. Um, this is getting at this that we believe that Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's not half and half. He's not some sort of amphibian. He is fully human, fully God, so that he could be our high priest and truly represent us. He was born of a virgin, and he led a sinless life. And then it says that he died here under Pontius Pilate. This is really important because it grounds Jesus in a historical reality, right? Um, it's not, he's not some Hindu god. He's not some um, you know, Buddhist spirit that we don't really know if they lived, when they lived, how they lived, just sort of something we all believe. No, Jesus lived in this exact period of time in history. And when Pontius Pilate was governor, and we have very good records about when that was, that's when he was executed, right? But then he rose again, and not just spiritually, not just for a nice greeting card, not just mythically, he rose again bodily. Like he actually, in his physical nature, rose again. That's a huge thing. There's a whole section of Protestantism about 120 years ago who's like, well, maybe he rose again spiritually, but not really, you know? Uh, and then most Protestants are like, are you kidding? No, he rose again bodily, right? Um, I mean, he ate, he 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 held court with his disciples. They touched his scars, right? Um, so he was physically raised. And he goes before us as high priest and advocate. Article five, the work of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Okay, so it's, we believe that it's only through Christ that we are saved, it's the only ground for salvation, and that he is our substitute. There's an intense debate going on for the last 30 or 40 years as to what, how exactly the atonement happened. We, won't get, we can have different views on this, but what you do have to believe is that Jesus somehow did atone for our sin by being a substitute for us on the cross. Whether you take a Christus Victor or Christus, I forget all the other names. Again, Josiah could, you know, I should have just leaned on him for this one. No. Uh, so that's the work of Christ. He atones for us by being a substitute. All right, Article 6, the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit in all that he does glorifies the Lord Jesus. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners. And in him, they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. I'd love to spend more time on this. Maybe we can do a whole sermon or series on the Holy Spirit soon. But I just want to read this from Ephesians 4. There's a bit of a debate uh, for the last century or so as to how many baptisms are there, right? Do you get baptized into the faith and then, you know, some people practice gifts of the Holy Spirit and some people don't and that's contentious. Do you need to get baptized again if you're going to have any sort of gifting in the Spirit? Is there, is there a second baptism? Uh, and though I do believe that the gifts of the Spirit exist, uh, I want to make it clear that I think Scripture is very clear that there is one baptism. So let me read this from Ephesians 4. Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this is important. He's talking about the Trinity here, right? We have one God the Father, one Lord, one Son, or one, you know, one Jesus, and then we have one faith and one baptism, right? So if all of a sudden it's two faiths or two baptisms or three baptisms, you know, do we have two, two gods or two fathers, two lords? 
No, he's, it, he's combining all of these as one thing. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So we believe in one baptism here. We certainly believe the spiritual gifts uh, exist and that some people do practice them, although it's probably been overhyped by a lot of churches. But the essence, the, the idea that the church has been walking in error for 1,900 years and then only in the last 100 years people figured out you've got to get a second baptism to be truly in, uh, I don't think that's correct. All right, Article 7. We've got a few minutes left here. The church. We believe that the true church compromises, or sorry, comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. We could do a whole sermon on this as well, but I was talking about this some with the Reformation, that the true church is manifested in local churches, just like in the New Testament. It's not some guy in Rome or some guy in Constantinople telling us how it ought to be. It's through local churches, through people loving and serving God. And their membership, the membership in those churches, should be composed only of believers. There was a long period in the Roman Catholic Church where they had a lot of priests who were not actually Christian. They had a lot of priests who did not believe in God, and this is this crisis. They're like, well, what do we do about all these priests who aren't actually believers? And they're like, well, um, there's this fancy Latin term for it. I forget what it is. Uh, but the idea was that as long as the priests are carrying out the rites of the church, even if they're not believers, it's just fine. So if they're still going through the motions of forgiving people, still going through the motions of reading the creeds and the, you know, the, the uh, baptismal rites and marriage rites and so on, then those practices stand, even though the person carrying it out isn't a believer. Protestant Reformation came along and said, get out of here with that. People just to belong to a church, you need to be a believer, especially the person who's regularly leading or preaching or speaking, whatever kind of leadership, they need to be uh, made up of believers. So you cannot have people who belong at a membership level. You can have regular attenders, but you cannot have members who are not believers, because then they're not members of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is what the church is, right? So we, the Bible talks about us as being stones in the temple, and the temple is the body of Christ. So we are all individual stones, but what good is a stone, right? But you put a bunch of stones together, and you get a temple, and that temple is the body of Christ. All right, let's see here. Article 8, Christian living. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor and justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. I really like this. And if this statement, I dare say, if this statement were made today, given all that's happened in the last few years over questions of social justice, I don't know if some of the drafters would have the guts to put this so boldly. But because they wrote this before, you know, it's, it's still there. And I fully, I, I wouldn't be a part of the Evangelical Free Church if it didn't say this, that uh, halfway through, it says um, compassion, about showing compassion toward the poor and justice for the oppressed. So this, this one paragraph, what it means to live in Christ is to marry these two different sides of faith together where we're 
making disciples and sharing the gospel, but also showing compassion toward the poor and justice for the oppressed. I don't know if you've been awake the last 20 years, but you tend to have conservative theological churches over here who are all concerned about you know, sharing the gospel and, and bearing witness to that and making disciples, right? But they see social justice as like, ooh, careful about serving the poor because that'll lead you astray. Then you have a lot of like liberal theological churches that serve the poor and do justice like crazy, but they're like, ooh, you know, the cross is kind of offensive. Let's not, let's not talk about that. Or let's just say that maybe all people can go to heaven. Let's just really double down on the social justice. Well, what's, what's great is, and this is something we commit to as Capital City, is that that is both tied up in our religion. So think of James 127, right? That um, pure and undefiled religion is this, right? To care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world, right? So again, conservative theological thinkers will say, yeah, keep oneself unstained from the world. That's great. Let's like make all these walls and keep the world out, right? But then uh, liberal theological churches will say, hey, it's like the true religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. But James 1.27 says both, right? And that's what we're doing as a church. We want to be both. We want to stick to the cross and the gospel and make disciples and share the good news that only Jesus saves and that he rose bodily on the third day and that if we believe in him, we too will rise bodily and live with him forever. But that we should spend our life working in these good works that he's prepared for us beforehand, like compassion toward the poor and justice for the oppressed, for the immigrant, the refugee, the migrant worker, the widow, the orphan. This is the kind of work that we are called to. And if you've not got one of those in your church, you're a very lopsided church, right? So my call to you guys, both in your Christian lives and as you as members look on the work of Capital City, always be working to keep us balanced, right? Not just kind of half and half on both of those, but all and all on both of those sides. All right, two more. Article 9, Christ's return. Is anyone aware of all the problems over this one in the last few years? Anyone? Anyone heard about this? Uh, Oh, man, there's a story here. So uh, Christ's return. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So it doesn't make sense today to get into all the controversy over this. It should, I mean, it shouldn't be. Uh, it, there, used to be there used to be a view in America as to just exactly what the end of the, end of the world would look like as to what the end of time would look like and how Jesus would come back just in exactly the manner he would do it. And that really was popular for about 50 years and now it's completely, completely died and almost no seminaries teach it anymore. It's just completely gone out of favor. If you ever grew up reading like the Left Behind books and all that rapture theology, that's, that, that's the view. In 1920 in America, if you were a Bible-believing Christian, that was your view. There was almost no exception to that. Whereas there are only two seminaries left in America that have any kind of prominence who teach that anymore, and not even that much at all. Um, And so the Evangelical Free Church wrote their statement of faith when all evangelicals believed that that's what the end was going to look like, that Jesus would come back in a premillennial sort of ruling kingdom way. Uh, And when they made that, it wasn't a problem because every evangelical in America believed that at the time, Uh, not in Australia or in England, but everyone here believed it. It was a very American idea. And so it didn't cause any trouble. But as time moved on, the entire, the entire apparatus for training pastors and church leaders moved away from that because they saw that there was a lot of holes in that theology, or rather that it wasn't definitive. So a lot of people moved on to other views. Uh, and then all of a sudden the EFCA, our denomination, our association of churches, couldn't hire pastors anymore 
Because in the statement of faith, it says you have to be a, you know, believe in this premillennial sort of rapture view. And most seminaries were turning out pastors who did not believe in that anymore. And so the EFCA is like, we can't, we can't even hire people anymore without this. So there was this whole um, hubbub about trying to change just one word from um, Christ's return from uh, premillennial to just being a glorious return. Because people over over the centuries have disagreed. And it largely depends on what kind of society you live in. If you live uh, under an overbearing government that's slowly taking your freedoms away and turning you into slaves, people tend to be premillennial. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back and just saves us all. But if you live in, a, in an environment like think of during the Enlightenment or the Scientific Revolution, people are living twice as long as they used to. We have hospitals now. We eventually have antibiotics. Like uh, quality of life is increasing, increasing, increasing. Hey, you know what? Maybe things will just keep getting better and better and better until Jesus comes back. And so then everyone, everyone then in the like mid eighteen hundreds was um, uh, post millennial. And then now you have these ah millennials. There's all these different views, and I know it's it's a different sermon for a different day, but it largely depends on your place in history, what view you have, and how you view the society around you. So they kind of scratched that and said, you just have to believe that Christ is coming back bodily and gloriously. Article 10, our last one. Response and eternal destiny. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. And the big point here, though it's unpopular to say, um, you know, when, when Roman missionaries first reached my ancestors in Norway, I don't know, something like 1,200 years ago, What's funny is my ancestors had the exact opposite response to what Americans today think about Christianity. My ancestors thought, your Jesus is a feminine God. He's a sissy. That's what, that's what I, this isn't appropriate right to say today, but I'm saying this is what those ancestors thought. Your Jesus is effeminate, right? All of that stuff about forgiving those who wrong you and turning other, the other cheek, that's, that's women's stuff. But your doctrine of hell, I can get behind that. That's what my ancestors thought. There's records of Norwegians, in, like this is how they took the gospel. Um, <laughs> but now it's the opposite, right? The world says, man, I love your Jesus, right? And how he forgives those who wrong him. And he, and he tells you to turn the other cheek and care for orphans and widows. But all this stuff about any sort of judgment, hmm, I'm really not okay with that. And all that goes to say is that the world changes. The world changes from era to era. My own ancestors think completely the oppositely of how we do now. But scripture does not change, and God's truth does not change. And what Article 10 means is that there is, that God is one who invites the world to know him, right? And if he invites you to know him, it's a question for another day as to what happens if you never hear the gospel. But if he invites you to know him and you say, thanks, but no thanks, I'm choosing another route, then he's a gentleman enough to honor that, right? So if he offers the free gift of grace in Christ and you say, no, I don't want that, then he is a gentleman enough to say, okay, you don't have to have me. And you can spend an eternity, because I created you with my image, right? I created you eternal. You can spend an eternity in the way you want, which is without me. The thing is, to be without God or any of his blessings, any of his gifts for eternity is a kind of conscious punishment. And it is eternal because he created us to be eternal. So basically this article 10, what it is saying is those who do not believe God don't just get turned off at the end of their life. This is an attractive view for people who hate the idea of hell today. 
They say, well, maybe people who don't believe in God just get like flicked off like a light switch. And it's just, they call it annihilation. Maybe you're just done when you're done. And, and this says, no, the Bible's clear that humans are eternal. He made us to live forever, whether we choose to be with God or not. So uh, kind of a weird day. I've never done something like this. But in order to establish membership, I wanted to go through each of these points so that you guys can know, hey, am I, am I in full agreement? Or do I have a few questions that I want to email? You can email me or call me this week with any questions about this. Next week, you can say, you know, this is pretty good, or I'd maybe change this or that, but as long as you agree with most of the nitty-gritty next week, you're good to go. But this statement of faith is something we need to be united in as members. And if you don't agree, uh, if you don't agree fully, that's fine. We'd love to have you still be regular attenders. Uh, people won't even know the difference, probably. You just won't be a voting member. But otherwise, no one would know the difference. We'd be glad to have you forever. But uh, if you want to become members, this is the statement of faith that we all uh, sign on to. With that, let me close, and then uh, we can get out of here uh, and downstairs to have some donuts and coffee while the way prepares. All right. Lord, thank you so much for Capital City Church. Thank you for our, uh, what is it, two and a half years now uh, since we planted. It's just been such a blessing. I pray that you would uh, work in the hearts of all of us as we examine this statement of faith and examine our own hearts. I pray you bless our church as we establish church membership, and that you would let this change from just having a small team lead into the priesthood of all believers, where the members lead. I pray that you would allow that to be a great blessing to our church, and that as we enter into this act two of our church, that it would just go very well. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.